as we're going into the COP27 summit, you know, I fail to really understand how it in any way is good for the economy, good for jobs or good for the climate. That was former Scottish Labour leader Richard Leonard, and we'll hear more from him later in the show. Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip, and on this episode, I'll be joined by Rachel Amory and Derek Healy to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. It's been a couple of weeks since our last change of Prime Minister, and the focus has been firmly on the economy again. Scotland's attempts as well to get away from the reliance on oil and gas, while also continuing to keep the finances topped up with all that helpful revenue. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon will be going to the next climate conference, COP27 in Egypt, And in another trademark UK government U-turn, so will our new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Two days before this recording, the great and good of the energy industry gathered in Aberdeen to knock heads together about the country's shift from fossil fuels, the so-called just transition, which gives workers a fairer crack at finding jobs in the new, greener, industrial future. But what's the reality? Rachel Amory's been looking into what's already happening in Scotland. Are we any closer to catching other countries in manufacturing the goods needed to harness offshore wind, wave and, and so on. Former Scottish Labour leader Richard Leonard has had a long interest in this field. Some of you will remember the Bifab Yard's own troubles here. Workers in Fife and the Western Isles found their business in admi- administration. But contracts have since been awarded to build parts for turbines. Well, we're reporting today online that the contract's been cut in half. More on that later. Rachel caught up with Richard in Holyrood and asked him what the signs are of any positive push towards a jobs-first renewable future. I mean, the Scottish TUC produced a report a couple of years ago called Broken Promises, Offshored Jobs. In other words, uh, I think um, when Alex Salmon was the First Minister, he promised that there'd be 130,000 jobs in marine technology alone, let alone onshore renewable technologies. And of course, very, very uh, few of those have actually materialised. And what we see, and uh, it's happening as we speak, that work that ought to have been carried out in Fife, in the fabrication yards there, uh, is being offshored to Indonesia. So that big um, offshore wind facility, which has been developed 10 miles off the coast of Fife uh, by the French company EDF Renewables, um, we've learned recently that... um, half of the work that was going to be coming to Fife uh, uh, for that installation is now going to be uh, carried out in Indonesia on virtually the other side of the world. So uh, as we're going into the COP27 summit, you know, I fail to really understand how it in any way is good for the economy, good for jobs or good for the climate to have um, uh, an offshore wind uh, facility off the coast of Fife manufactured in the Far East. What do you think, the Scottish government and the UK government, what more could both do at this point to try and solve that kind of problem? Well, we're told, and I asked questions of the Scottish government recently and uh, got answers from uh, a couple of ministers talking about how uh, Crown Estate Scotland was going to have some kind of supply chain policy. But it's all very well having a policy if, in the end, uh, people working in fabrication yards in Scotland are being thrown out of work and, and people with skills are lying idle and the facilities that we've got are not being used. I mean, I go back to the days when um, uh, those yards were oil rig fabrication yards and we always had a battle on to try and get work um, sourced in Scotland to supply the North Sea 
Um, and uh, those battles that we fought all of those years ago, it feels as though we're fighting once again when it comes to the renewable offshore sector. And um, that's very disappointing because there ought to be a plan. Uh, if we had an industrial strategy, a plan for skills, we could uh, look towards the future when we expect demand for construction work to be in place. So how do we get the skill sets? How do we bring young people through? How do we train people so that we are in a position uh, to win those uh, contracts? And the truth of the matter is uh, the market is allowed to let rip far too much. And uh, it means that people uh, in the east of Fife, for example, are losing out on opportunities. And there is no greater uh, symbol of what's wrong with our approach to renewable energy than an offshore wind farm 10 miles off the coast of Fife. You can virtually see it from methyl, and yet there you have a, a fabrication yard which is not being used to full capacity. Well, that's another thing that we've been talking about this week as well, is this um, yard, the Highland and Wolf yard in methyl and its sister yard in Arnish. And we've heard that this contract to build um, eight wind time jar jackets is now been reduced to just four, 50% of it's been taken away and it's been caused by supply chain issues. What do you think there? Do you think that's, I mean, it's obviously not good news for the yard itself, is it? No, it's not good news. And um, um, Arnish Point is in the Western Isles. So we've got uh, we've got a, 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 an, an area that desperately needs investment. Those jobs are highly prized jobs in the Western Isles as they are in Fife. And yet, uh, it feels as though they are being abandoned. It feels as though they are not getting the investment. And you know, I asked a question of the Scottish government and got a reply a, a week or so ago where they said to me, oh, the, the vision is in five years' time, there will be uh, a 1,000 jobs, 600 and more jobs in methyl, 400 jobs at Arnish Point. But when I speak to the trade union representatives there today, they tell me that uh, these are these are miles away from where things are at the moment uh, and the the numbers in each yard is is very very small and it's not that long ago that um, Arnish Point was making people redundant uh, it's not that long ago that there was a big downsizing at methyl there needs to be a bit more of a vision a bit more of a long-term plan uh, and a broader industrial strategy that says these jobs are important we, we want an economy which is balanced where there is a strong manufacturing base as well as a, a vibrant service sector where we are equipping people with the skills uh, that we know we are going to need in the future. The, these jobs, these are green jobs, and they're going to be somewhere. My argument is we should be making more of an effort to make sure that they are in Scotland and not going across the other side of the world to Indonesia. I mean, that's another thing as well as the jobs there, because as well as reducing this contract by half, um, a recent document from a recent audit document from Harland and Wolf has suggested that in the future these yards should bid for smaller value contracts between four and ten million pounds, which um, the contract for for the the winter is about twenty six point five million to begin with. So it's quite a big difference in size of these contracts if that does happen. Are you confident that the jobs going forward are going to be secure in these yards? Well, um, I know that. Um the skills that the yards have got are really forged on the experience that they had in uh, offshore oil and gas in you know in building oil rigs and uh, those installations were of a big size they required you know, very substantial jackets as they're called which is what they make in these yards 
uh, upon which you put the, the the tower for the wind turbine, there needs to be, um, you know, in my uh, estimation, it's perfectly possible, it's perfectly rational, and the experience is there to build some of these larger scale uh, projects and not simply go into a niche market. Look, we should be building uh, and supplying the mainstream component parts of offshore uh, renewables. And um, the skills are here. We've got the capacity here. We just need some drive and leadership uh, and not a retreat into saying we should concentrate on a niche market. We need to, 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 to capture not only those smaller demand, uh, smaller scale demands that there may be, but also concentrate as well on picking up some of those bigger value contracts. And um, when it comes to windfall tax, is this something, obviously I know that there's been lots of talk with that recently with the Labour Party. Is, is it a way it can be used to help boost jobs, do you think, as well? Well, I mean, the, um, the, the a windfall tax would be um, what it says it is. In other words, it will be a tax on windfall profits, profits that are not, if you like, earned, but come about as a result of a change in financial circumstances, whether that's uh, what's happening to the price of, pa- of power and energy or whether that's what's happening uh, in, in, in the banks. I mean, the, you know, the banks, for example, are doing very well. So it's often portrayed that the Labour Party wants to hammer, uh, you know, uh, Scotland's uh, energy, oil and gas sector and so on. Uh, but actually what we've said is that we want to look at a windfall tax that will apply uh, to all of those who are supplying energy. Uh, and I think there is a case as well for looking at the big windfall benefits that the banks have had uh, in recent months uh, as being a way of, uh, bringing some revenue in and it's been done before when Gordon Brown was the Chancellor way back in uh, the late 1990s uh, it was something that was done to help pay for investment uh, in uh, employment for young people so I think you know and which was a social good and got people uh, back into work and gave people opportunities so I think if it's done in that kind of structured way and it doesn't just mean a windfall tax which goes into general taxation but it's got a purpose uh, then I think that's something that many people would support. That was Richard Leonard, the former Scottish Labour leader in Holyrood, speaking to Rachel there. And you're with us now, Rachel. What do you think this means then for, for Scotland's push away from oil? It, there is obviously needing to be this new this new industrial base that is going to be based on renewables because we know that that's where the country's going to have to go eventually at some point. But it does seem like maybe it needs to go a bit quicker, it needs to go a bit faster, and there needs to be a bit more certainty for those who are in the oil and gas industry, which is a highly skilled and a highly paid industry, to make sure that that's kept, basically, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, and political leaders talk a good game on climate change. Rishi Sunak, it seems, needed to be dragged into going into the next climate conference. Meanwhile, Nicola Sturgeon's under pressure to fill in those, those blanks in the shift to renewables. Derek, what, what, what do you think we're hearing from the higher level, I mean, how are how are the, the the leaders of our governments approaching this now? Well, I think they're they're making some of the right kind of sounds, aren't they? But the problem is, is it backed up with actions? Um, I think we've seen previously the Scottish government has missed uh, a number of its targets. So has the UK government in recent years um, in terms of climate change action. Um, you know, some of the talking points coming out of COP twenty six. Um, there'll be a question now we're heading to COP27 how much of that has actually been actioned has enough action been taken um, you know it's quite it's quite depressing in a way you know, hearing Richard Leonard's interview there um, when I first moved to Tayside a lot of the talk was around decommissioning work and how um, the region was missing out you know, Fife was missing out quite a lot on 
um, some of that decommissioning work coming in, that it was being, you know, coming from the North Sea and then being sent across the world and things like that. So this is again the same kind of conversation here where there's opportunities for people living in Tayside and Fife to to benefit from some of this, or even in the North East if we want to widen it out, um, to benefit from some of this work that's going on, some of this important work that's going on. Um, and they're missing out on it, they're missing out on opportunities. And I think it's quite worrying to hear that that's still the same conversation that's being had. So, um, you know, whilst there's action needing to be taken on on this, there's also really great opportunities. And I think that's something where um, we need very serious answers on, really. Yeah, well, and while this is obviously a huge part of the Scottish economy, there's no getting away from it. Oil and gas underpins, has underpinned so much of, of everything. Um it's not just the, it's not the only part of the economy and of course John Swinney who's currently um, acting as finance secretary in the Scottish government um well he must have been staring in in disbelief at the balance sheet I think this week he set out an emergency budget review um just a couple of days before we are recording today give it to us straight Derek are we doomed <laughs> I mean, it seems a little bit that way doesn't it so we're talking 600 million of cuts <laughs> that adds up to a billion if you take in the stuff that happened back in September as well um, and then we've got another budget announcement coming from the UK government. Uh, I believe it's this month. I think it's coming later this month. It's going to be. And the, the kind of mood music there is we're going to even see even more cuts. We're going to see even more difficult times, um, partly to make up for some of the mini budget and some of the chaos we saw there. And just some of it because things are so tough at the moment anyway. So, you know, it's going to be further pain down the line. And if you look at what John Swinney announced, so there's some really worrying stuff in there. So there's first of all the Taste Cities deal, which will be um, something that will be very familiar to our listeners, I would imagine, um, or anyone reading our newspapers. Um, the, the talk is they're going to suspend some of that funding, um, which is going to put even more pressure on some of those projects, which mm. already were looking like they were struggling to get kind of over the line. So that's really worrying. Perhaps even more worrying than that was some of the money being taken away from the health service at a time when we are being told that this is going to be the most difficult winter ever. And, you know, this is something we report every single year, and it's not newspaper hyperbole. It is what we are told every year. It gets worse and worse and worse. If you're stripping out this money, it's going to be even more difficult. And then on top of that, you have this potential for even more money to have to be found when we see the UK government's coming along the line. So no, it's, in yeah. it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. Yeah. Of course, a lot of the, 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 the conversation around the emergency review was on the health service as well, which has clearly mm -hmm. not got its problems to seek. Uh, meanwhile, John Swinney was, um, I think he, he was telling broadcasters anyway, basically put his hands up there after all of this saying, well, that, that's it, there's no more money. But then a day later, um, we're staring at more industrial unrest, um, trains potentially getting called off in the weekends running up to Christmas. So, I mean, these are high-impact um, looming industrial actions, if you will, you know, across the network. It's going to affect people trying to get around, doing the Christmas shopping and the very things that people still hope that they can get on and, and do. Um, the Westminster, of course, has uh, got more to do on this one. And there's another budget coming in December the, December the 15th at the Scottish Parliament as well. And so that's that's going to be where we have to... Next stop, December the 15th, see what else is in store. Right in time for Christmas, wonderful. <laughs> well, it's time to focus our minds away from that Hollywood bubble now, though, and the national shared trauma with our regular roundup of the top stories that we want you to know more about. Yeah, 
I, I mentioned the move away from a, a shared national trauma there, but I'm not sure that was quite a very fair way to tee it up because uh, we're going to go straight to the, 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 the streets of Kirkton in uh, Dundee now. Um, we can't move on without discussing this. It's, it's absolutely consumed our news teams across um, the Dundee newsrooms anyway. Uh, Rachel, bring us up to speed. What's been happening? In yeah, this Kirkton? was a Halloween night in the streets of Kirkton where it just seemed to descend into chaos really um there was uh, wheelie bins overturned and set on fire um fireworks were thrown bricks were thrown um and like i said like, like you said there the courier's coverage has been so in depth with this and if you've not had a chance to look at it please do because the photographs from the night as well are quite something else to have a look at so please do um listeners if you if you have a chance but yeah it's it's um really shocked a lot of people it, not just in Dundee but beyond as well because it just yeah it just seems so dangerous there was a police officer injured as well in all of this um, a school was vandalised as well too um, and I, be I believe there's now um, proceedings um, uh, with, with some arrests as well on the end of it so yeah it was really quite something that happened on Halloween night and I think there's now a fear because it's bonfire night coming up soon too where more fireworks are going to be um, potentially set off isn't there yeah. Well, what's the, what's the response been like in the city, Derek? You speak to local city council leaders, people like John Alexander, what have they been doing? Well, I think first and foremost, the response has been shock and anger at some of the scenes that we've seen. You know, I think it's probably worth talking about some of the context of this, and that is that every year we do see some kind of small level unrest and, and trouble and things like that around this time of year in Kirkton. Um, so that's not new. What's new here is the scale of it. I mean, this is this is way beyond I think anything we've seen, certainly in recent years. Certainly since I've I've been here, I, I think this is way worse than anything we've seen before. Um, in terms of the response, there's been discussions around some of the supermarkets, some of the major supermarkets, um, Tesco and Asda and things like that. They they have decided to remove the sale of fireworks during this period, um, which is quite a step to take. But you know, it's not going to totally solve the problem here. It's not just about the sale in these big supermarkets because they're still available online and in smaller shops. In terms of the the conversation that's been had locally around Kirkton, so look, you mentioned John Alexander, um, you have Kevin Keenan for Labour. So the local councillors here have also been talking about what parents can do and that they can, you know, question their children and say, because a lot of them are children who've been involved in this and say to them, you know, where, where were you last night? What have you been doing? Have you seen anything? Have you heard anything? Um, and get involved in that kind of level. But I think really there's going to have to be some kind of some kind of movement on this, some kind of action. And we've already seen questions around where were the police? What did the police do? Um, I think there's going to be further questions in, in that direction as well because we saw people being ha having to be evacuated from their homes, people stuck in their cars. Yeah. Um, and police nearby when some of that stuff was going on. So, yeah, I think there's major questions still to be answered about all of this. Our own colleague Brian Copeland, who's um, Dundee based, he was you know, leading the leading the coverage of that on the night of it happening, and he was one of those people who's basically driving into a wall of fire and suddenly mm. being confronted with a, a rather large um, story on his doorstep, literally. Um, and Rachel, you know, there, there was calls in Parliament as well um, to try and bring forward more rules and regulations around the sale of fireworks. Um, you know, Derek was just saying there about the, the supermarkets themselves taking an initiative, but that obviously doesn't stop folk nipping up the road somewhere else to get some. Um, what, what's the Justice Secretary or MSPs in, in, in Parliament, what are they saying about um, the rules and regulations? 
Well, there's actually been some new regulations on firework sales that came in about a fortnight ago, um, which people might not actually be aware of, actually. Um, so basically, it's now you now can't buy fireworks for underage teens. So just, for example, like alcohol, if you buy some fireworks and then give them to someone who's underage, that's now classed as um, illegal and there's now a £5,000 fine or six months in prison if you're caught doing it. Um, likewise, if an emergency service worker is injured using a firework, that can now be classed as an aggravating factor when it comes to prosecutions as well. So there have been some new rules brought in around that. And in the coming year, there's going to be more on sort of creating regulation zones and things like that too. Um, and there has always been the rule that you can't actually set off fireworks out with six o'clock and 11 o'clock. And I think that extends to midnight on November the 5th. Um, but that's, that's, that rule's always been there, so... Yeah. Well, and of course, uh, there's a handy guide to all those rules and regulations available on our Preston Journal and Courier Politics pages now. Um, Elsewhere, Rachel, you've been looking at another story which is um, touching communities across the country, but Nicola Sturgeon in particular had to step in because um, there's been quite a lot of concerns about the response months down the line about Scotland's open arms to Ukrainian refugees trying to find some sanctuary in, in Scotland, of course, um, another high-profile um, invitation made by by the, the leader of the government. But some evidence now that maybe it's not quite as straightforward as people might have, have uh, made out made it out to be. This is, we're looking in particular at a, a tiny village on Loch Tay called um, Killin, and uh, the hotel there, for the, past, for the past few while, about 60 refugees from Ukraine have been staying at this hotel. Um, some of them have now got kids at the local school, some of them have got jobs in the village or in the surrounding villages as well. But recently, the Scottish government cancelled its contract with the hotel to house them there. And they were given just 20 days to, to leave. And there's a lot of um, uncertainty there. Um, the community council, the hotel, the, the, the refugees themselves were all kind of in the dark as to what was going to happen to them. And this was then brought up at First Minister's Questions this week in Holyrood and this seems to be a bit of a U-turn. Nicholas Sturgeon said those who want to stay in the village, particularly those who have the jobs or have the kids at the school, will now be supported to stay in the hotel a bit longer than this 28 days, um, which I suppose is good news for them, isn't it? It gives them a bit more leeway in trying to find something a bit more long-term. Um, one of the reasons she was saying was that quite a lot of them want to go to a more sort of urban location where there's a bit better jobs. Um, and Killin is a tiny wee place um, far away from a lot of other places, but yeah. there are obviously people who do want to stay there too. Yeah, Tayside's uh, all the action at the moment. I mean, uh, Derek, you've been looking at um, the the health board there more recently as well, and for a longer term project, which uh, you can share with us as well here. But uh, what, what's been going on in the NHS Tayside? Because that that's a story that we return to a lot. It is. It's something we've talked about in this podcast before as well. So um, the kind of update this week was that Michael Mara, Northeast MSP, has released a video where he's effectively calling out the government and, and, and calling on the health secretary to recognise that there's been um, failings into a report into breast cancer services in Tayside. And that, that has been the kind of foundation block, in his view, of problems recruiting new members of staff to that breast cancer service. I mean, the breast cancer service has basically collapsed in Tayside. They have no um, consultants left. At the moment, people are being sent to other areas for treatment, um, and it's in a real mess. So that's that was a kind of update this week. You're correct. Um, we I have been working on a sort of longer-term project, um, which we will have 
hopefully something quite special on next week in the Stushy, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, and we'll also have a project um, that will be going live this week as well on our website. Um, yeah, so that'll be exciting. So I hope people will tune in and check it out. Yeah, and I think people, uh, you know, not to undersell yourself there, Derek, I think this, this is going to this is gonna make some eyebrows get raised across um, the corridors of government because, I mean, yeah, you've been speaking to a lot of people with a lot of knowledge about um, what's been going on at NHS Tayside and the breast cancer shambles there, basically. So stay tuned for next week on that. I think we can probably round off here with um, the most obscure politics story of the week. But, it, you know, it... it um, it had some fond memories for us, though. Kezia Dugdale, of course, being one of our very own politicians that's uh, had a wee uh, jaunt to the celebrity jungle. Matt Hancock is now um, heading down there as well. So with, it's, I mean, it. I don't understand how we've never done this before because even just saying the name Matt Hancock makes me just immediately want to say Stoosh of the Week. Stoosh, 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 stoosh of the Week. Yeah, Matt Hancock. Um, are you all going to be tuning in to I'm a Celebrity and um, voting for him to stay and eat various animal body parts? Do you know, I've not actually watched that programme for quite a few years now, but I think I will definitely be watching this year to see that. Absolutely, yeah. I've, ne- I've never watched, and I'm, I'm afraid now that that's going to mean I have to watch, which is not ideal. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll be um, it'll be must, must-see viewing. I'm, I'm looking forward to a nation br- being brought together by uh, by a Conservative MP. So that's it for this week. Thanks to Derek Healy, Rachel Amory, guest Richard Leonard, producer Morvin McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more, but until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal, and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. The Stushy is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushy today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.